This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Today, um, this is Dan Zhang with Subversity. Uh, today, we're going to look back at the life of uh, Robert S. McNamara, a warmonger who turned peacemaker um, after the Vietnam War, after he um, was the architect. He uh, conducted the Vietnam War, killed a lot of people, and then re- lived to regret that. And so he died this morning in, on the East Coast, and already two uh, good obituaries have shown have come out, and uh, including one of them by Tim Weiner. Um, if you ever wondered how newspapers get uh, obituaries out so fast, it's because they're written before the guy dies, before the subject dies. And Tim Weiner, of course, is an um, excellent reporter who had been covering um, Mexico, but also earlier, the Central Intelligence Agency, and before that, uh, other uh, world issues. Uh, McNamara was the architect of the Vietnam War, and he was the whiz kid and president of the Ford Motor Company when he was hired by JFK, John F. Kennedy, to run the Defense Department. He also was the architect of the failed... um, Cuban Missile Crisis, Um, you could say it was failed because it led to a failed uh, invasion. And uh, also, he um, was um, brought in to reorganize the Defense Department. He was a math whiz and a statistics whiz and could, uh, everything was number crunching. Um, That's when we heard the battle casualty list, uh, the battle count, I guess. Uh, and so if it became an indicator of whether we were succeeding or not. But of course, at the same time, even though a lot more Vietnamese were killed in this war, uh, which he later admitted was a civil war, that the U.S. should not have gotten involved, he... Um, he instituted this uh, body count thing, but even though it end up, ended up 58,000 Americans were killed and countless others more were killed in Vietnam, uh, countless more Vietnamese were killed, and of course lots of allied forces, including a huge number of Korean, South Korean soldiers, were sent to Vietnam in return for money from the U.S. to develop South Korea and now South Korea is suffering, the, those soldiers, South Korean troops, are suffering the consequences of that involvement with many soldiers, um, their kids, suffering from the effects of Agent Orange, which um, U.S. poured over Vietnam to defoliate the forests in an attempt to expose the hidden areas of the Viet Cong. But of course, that Agent Orange was a toxic chemical and led to many deformities of children and grandchildren of those involved, both here in Little Saigon, in South Korea, and of course in Vietnam. So Defense McNamara, what was his what was his legacy then? He left 
he kind of quietly wanted to leave when he knew that the war was unwinnable. And he was offered a job to head the World Bank. And uh, the, not the World Bank, sorry, the Ford Foundation. And then he, uh, or was it, uh, let's see, what was it he left to wear, to, to lead? <laughs> I've been reading so much about him this morning, I got confused. Um, anyway, he um, quietly quit his uh, post, and, uh, but he didn't tell anybody uh, outside, or nor did he, t- I mean, he didn't come out against the war outside when he left the U.S. government. And so he went on to um, to become a head of an agency that became an international agency that became a leader in the fight. It shifted to fight uh, poverty. And uh, so after he uh, had increased the budget, increased the escalation in Vietnam, adding more troops to Vietnam, he uh, decided to call it quits. Uh, in his biography, in his memoirs, he's, he doesn't say that he actually quit. He's not sure he quit or was fired, he says. But he uh, was able to leave the government and go on to uh, become an advocate of fighting poverty um, instead of waging war. And so he was the top figure of the top defense secretary, I would say, of the 20th century. Um, For those of us who lived through the Vietnam War, it was uh, basically a... uh, an incredible time where we saw that here was this whiz kid who knew computers and who would go on and uh, lead this war effort and try to quantify battle deaths. And we just saw him as this evil person um, that uh, was uh, incredibly uh, unapologetic. But then he changed. He did uh, go on and write his Mia Culpa. Um, he wrestled with the with this uh, this war, and he was pilloried for coming clean by many of the establishment figures. Um, but to his credit, he did um, say that he was wrong, that he was wrong to wage war against uh, this small country in Southeast Asia and which led to, of course, he focused mostly on the deaths of Americans um, but he recognized that when he met the enemy in the post-war period, he did go back to go, go to Vietnam and uh, talk to the other side who which welcomed him and his book was uh, actually bootlegged and uh, his book of memoirs and available all over Vietnam. Uh, So I think that this guy was a rare individual who was able to 
be um, apologetic and know that he did something wrong, apologize, and also be uh, and come clean and uh, be able to confess uh, that he shouldn't have been involved in this war against a small country. Um, by the time he left office, 535,000 uh, American service people had been pressed into service, and 30,000 had died. Uh, this was in 68. And in the book, he actually says that he gives a chart which shows that the U.S. could have left earlier on the same terms instead of waiting to 1975 to end the war, uh, to leave Vietnam. Uh, the peace treaties were signed in 70, uh, 1973 in Paris, and uh, he, uh, he could have, he could have uh, left earlier, and he regrets that uh, now. Uh, he was the true company man, though. He didn't uh, go public when he left the, the Defense Department, but he uh, eventually did write his uh, memoir. And he was known, of course, at the time as McNamara's War, uh, this war, uh, which uh, uh, was uh, because he had brought in these whiz kids to the Pentagon and to the government and uh, to wage a kind of computerized war. It was basically the first computerized war where computers were used to bring back all these numbers uh, that could justify uh, killing people. Uh, and uh, it was, of course, of what the LA Times calls in its obituary a falsely optimistic portrayal of the war's grim prospects. Um, and so he was, uh, he could, um, regular, uh, could um, legitimately be credited with the deaths of m thousands of people because of his war in Vietnam. Yet to his credit, he did uh, write his book, In Retrospect, The Tragedy and Lessons of Vietnam, in 1995, in which he concluded that this domino theory was false, that Vietnam's collapse would not have led to the overthrow of governments in Asia, in Southeast Asia, to a succession of communist states. Uh, he did not think that would happen uh, in retrospect, but of course that's part, in part why the U.S. went into Vietnam to what they thought uh, the rhetoric was, of course, and that was, of course, promoted by the South Vietnamese government, the rhetoric that uh, Vietnam was the domino, and this was the domino theory at the heyday of this, was the domino theory that, uh, that you know, if we don't stop communism in Vietnam, it's going to lead uh, takeover in other countries. And, of course, that was patently false. Um, each country, of course, has its own conditions, and you can't predict what's going to happen in another country based on what happens in, a th in the first country. And so he finally realized that, and he went, um, went out. 
he, to his credit, he did in 1968 decide to go and uh, and join in uh, the this new uh, this effort at uh, international organization. He shifted this efforts, and this was, of course, the World Bank, where he shifted the efforts to uh, uh, focus on poverty. And it's clear that uh, at the time he was there, his efforts were kind of mixed. Of course, he did not, in fact, uh, succeed very much at the World Bank um, uh, because poverty did not get worse. In fact, it, got, it did not get better. It got worse. As uh, Tim Wiener's uh, obituary in the New York Times Today uh, website, today's website, uh, is clear about. Uh, but in the book, it's interesting, uh, one of the big controversies about the Vietnam War was this uh, Gulf of Tonkin resolution. And, of course, that was a fake um, um, incident that the Pentagon um, uh, analysts tried to um, promote as an attack uh, in the waters off North Vietnam against the Americans. And the U.S. used that to push through a Gulf of Tonkin resolution. Uh, even though it was a fake uh, impetus for it, the resolution which had been pre-drafted uh, for this eventuality um, got rushed through Congress. And in his memoirs, McNamara recalls that, uh, notes that the resolution actually says, gives a lot of power to the United States to wage war, even though the Congress people who voted for it uh, later would claim that they weren't sure what it would do. So he says it was clear that the Congress gave them the authority, but of course the impetus for it was a fake uh, attack in the Gulf of Tonkin. Um, so that was part of the deceit that was prevalent during the Vietnam Vietnam War, that the, our policymakers had to come up with lies to justify uh, increasing uh, American involvement in the civil war in Vietnam and uh, to wage war. And so he was responsible for that as much as uh, anybody else. Um, of course, when he had started to have doubts about the war, he infuriated uh, his boss, Lyndon Johnson, the president, uh, who was enraged at uh, McNamara for having the audacity to challenge him. And so he always thought, McNamara always thought he might get fired. Um, so there was a way out when the World Bank vacancy became open. Uh, he was quietly uh, considered and um, and the Treasury Secretary is quoted in uh, his book as uh, as a t uh, as approaching LBJ to um, to ask him who would he nominate to be head of the World Bank because the big powers do nominate the heads and he put down uh, US has three choices World Bank president, 
And he put, uh, LBJ put down McNamara, McNamara, McNamara. And so he wanted him out of there. And so he got um, away. He was able to leave the administration that was stuck in this Vietnam quagmire with no way out of it. Um, Probably because they were trying to be nice to the South Vietnamese government. And he knew that there was no way to get out. And that chart he talks about is in his book uh, that I talked about. His, that chart uh, details uh, different dates where the U.S. could have withdrawn from Vietnam starting in the, late 70, in the mid to late 70s, uh, uh, 60s, and uh, 60s. And it could have saved you know, 20,000 American deaths or 30,000 uh, if they had left earlier, uh, not to s- talk about the thousands of Vietnamese deaths that could also have been saved. Um, so Vietnam actually owes uh, the people who want peace, actually, now are lucky that he came clean and wrote his memoirs. Uh, but before he did that, he actually commissioned a huge study on the Vietnam War called, that was later to be called the Pentagon Papers. And that's another uh, historic uh, legacy of the Vietnam War, is that we have this study, even during a war, of why the war is the wrong place for the U.S. to have gotten into, um, or the different uh, the, the wrong war to have gotten into. And uh, he commissioned it. He got analysts from various... Uh, think tanks, uh, including RAND Corporation, to delve into the Vietnam War and the reason it started. And we're going to take a look at uh, one of the characters or listen to one of the important people who um, made public the Pentagon Papers because this was a secret study of the Vietnam War conducted during the war. Um, One of the two important people in this uh, story. The other, of course, was Tony Russo. Um, One of them was Tony Russo, who convinced Daniel Ellsberg uh, at the Rand Corporation to release and to photocopy and then release to the government, to the senators who were anti-war, and also we, uh, to the media. And, of course, that led to a constitutional uh, fight at the Supreme Court, even, uh, over whether the New York Times, which began publishing portions, the portions of the Pentagon paper on its front pages, um, it was enjoined from publishing by the government, uh, which went to court, and that case went all the way to the Supreme Court. Uh, the New York Times' own lawyers refused to handle the case, and the the New York Times had to go outside for outside lawyers, including Floyd Abrams, a First Amendment lawyer who handled this case, and argued that prior restraint of the press was unjustified. And so... That was the conclusion of the Supreme Court, and the presses rode again, 
and the American people were able, and the world people of the world were able to read the secret study that was commissioned by this war hawk, uh, Robert McNamara, who, in his days, last days in government at the time, uh, regretted waging this war against the Vietnamese people. Um, and so we're gonna uh, go uh, listen to a excerpt of uh, uh, a, a program, actually, not an excerpt, uh, of this talk that was given by by uh, Daniel Ellsberg about why it's important to come clean during um, during wartime, uh, and um, we will be airing that uh, momentarily. Uh, and that's this was a talk he gave in 2006 about telling truth in the. Uh, in a time of war. Daniel Ellsberg. Telling truth in time of war. You're listening to Simplicity. Yeah, on KUCI. 88.9 FM. So that was uh, the, our excerpt from uh, our program from National Radio Projects Making Contact, Daniel Ellsberg, on truth-telling in a time of war. And he, um, of course, um, was working on a study that Robert McNamara, who died this morning, uh, commissioned. And uh, we can go to his memoirs, McNamara's memoirs, for what, why he did that. Uh, on page 280, he says, uh, McNamara, by now it was clear to me that our policies and programs in Indochina had evolved in ways we had neither anticipated nor intended, and that, that, and that the costs, human, political, social, and economic, had grown far greater than anyone had imagined. We had failed. Why this failure? Could it have been prevented? What lessons could be, could be drawn from our experiences? that would enable others to avoid similar failures. The thought that scholars would surely wish to explore these questions once the war had ended was increasingly on my mind. In June 1967, I decided to ask John McNaughton, my Assistant Secretary for International Security Affairs, ISA, to start collecting documents for, for future scholars to use. I told him to cast his net wide, wide, including relevant reports not just from our department, from also from the State Department, the CIA, and the White House. Because I wanted the work done as objectively as possible, I said to John I would not be personally involved. Tell your researchers not to hold back, I instructed. Let the chips fall where they may. He said he never thought to mention the project to the president or secretary of state, um, you know, but they, it was hardly a secret because he says because it was there were thirty six researchers and analysts ultimately involved. The document collecting started on June seventeenth, nineteen sixty seven, uh, a month before Norton McNaughton's tragic death in an accident, uh, under the direction of Leslie H. Gelb. 
um, who was a member of the ISA staff and now president of um, the Council on Foreign Relations. Um, Kelp was quoted, is quoted in his, in his memoirs, as, in uh, McNamara's memoirs, as saying, all I had to do was call up and say, McNamara asked, I would go see people, explain the study, and say I wanted the following kind of information. They all said, yeah, sure. No one refused a thing. By early 16, 1969, going far beyond the collection of raw materials for scholars, they had completed a 7,000-page study of America's Vietnam policy since, 19, uh, since World War II. It had shortcomings, uh, in part reflecting the natural limitations of history written close to the event, and in part before Les and his team, in fact, lacked access to White House files, White House files and some top-level State Department files. But overall, the work was superb, and it accomplished um, uh, my objective. Almost every scholarly work on Vietnam has since has, then has drawn to varying degrees on it. But as with so much involving Vietnam, this effort to assist scholars was also a lesson in unintended consequences. In 1971, Daniel Ellsberg, who had worked for Gelb, leaked documents to the New York Times, and the editors christened it Pentagon Papers and began running excerpts to the intense embarrassment, says McNamara, of officials from both the Johnson and Nixon administration. So that you have it, McNamara commenting on Ellsberg's um, uh, release uh, of the Pentagon Papers, which he had actually ordered done when he was still in government, um, but it came out after he had left, uh, when he became the head of the World Bank. Um, uh, let's also take a, a look at the chart that I mentioned earlier, uh, where he uh, said these are the times when the U.S. could have withdrawn. On uh, November 1963, at that time, U.S. force levels in South Vietnam were 16,300 uh, so-called advisors, and U.S. killed in action was 78. And, and the basis of for withdrawal, says McNamara in this book, collapse of Diem regime and lack of political stability. Um, so that was when Diem was, uh, was killed, uh, when uh, the... Um, other forces took over um, in South Vietnam. So he says the U.S. could have withdrawn then, November 63. Also, November, uh, late 1964, early 65, when U.S. had 23,300 advisors, uh, and the number of people U.S. killed in Vietnam was at 225. Clear indication of South Vietnam's in- inability to defend itself even with U.S. training and logistical support. Then July 1965, U.S. force levels were up to 81,400, and those killed from the U.S. were 509. Further evidence of the above, which is lack of ability to defend itself, South Vietnam. December 65, 184,300 troops force level, U.S. force levels in Vietnam, in South Vietnam. Uh, Number of killed, uh, U.S. 1,594. Evidence that the U.S. military tactics and training were inappropriate for the guerrilla war, war, guerrilla war being waged. Uh, that was December 65. Then December, two years later, 1967, force level had gone up to 485,600 troops. 
uh, and those killed in, were f- at 15,979. The uh, uh, McNamara writes, CIA reports indicating bombing in the North could, would not force the North, Vin- North Vietnam to desist in the face of our inability to turn back enemy forces in South Vietnam. And um, January 1973, 543,400 troops uh, in April, uh, uh, 543,400 troops at force level, uh, and number of dead, 58,191. This is by the time of the signing of Paris Accords, Masking, uh, marking the end of U.S. military involvement. So there are many uh, times in different decades, uh, in, in, in I mean, it's, uh, yeah, in throughout that decade uh, or two, where the U.S. could have left Vietnam, uh, which he said would could have, and uh, McNamara, uh, who we remember today, uh, who died earlier today, uh, we remember as a warmonger turned peacemaker. And um, also a person who regretted waging war and wrote a memoir, a mea culpa, about it. Uh, so today you've been listening to Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI.